Praise God. All right. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Always a blessing to be in Denver and, and particularly to be, to be here. This is such a great place. I have tremendous love for this man of God and this woman of God. They are such a blessing, such a blessing. I'm telling you, um, you know, I've, I've never met two people that have such a purity in their passion um, to impact the city and to, to be a blessing to your life. And that's something, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of pastors, unfortunately, you know, our own uh, sense of ego can cause us to be more concerned about uh, church success than we are about people. And what I love about them is their love for you, their love for people. And that's a blessing. Amen. As always, I get to see my friend, Bishop Darlington. I told him he's looking good, man. He lost some weight and looking suave and good. So it's a blessing to see you. And then I got a chance to meet a person that I've admired from afar, Pastor Keith. I, I and just really aware of some of the things that you guys are doing and, and just excited about having the opportunity to connect with you and to meet with you. Amen. Everybody's doing good? Okay. There, somebody, somebody give me a Bible. I might need one of those. That's all right. That's all right. It's cool. I'm, I'm, I'm secure in my masculinity. <laughs> What, what kind of Bible is this, first of all? It's a new international? No, man, that's not the real Bible. I need, I need, what kind of Bible you got? What are you all, who's got, let me, yeah, I, I see, man after my own heart. How you doing, man? It's good to see you. You're one of them Christians. Yeah. Okay, open up your Bible um, wherever you want to. Only reason I went and got this is because some of you all won't consider that I've preached unless there's one of those up there. So I'm make sure there's one up there, okay? So <laughs> I really just want to spend some time sharing. I'm, I'm in one of those places, um, and if, if, if you're not familiar with me, I, you know, when I come here, I really consider this a, a, a kind of coming home, and so um, I feel like I can ramble and and do all of those things that, that people do when, when they're uh, in the comfort of their own home. So um, I'm, I'm in a kind of strange place because there are certain things that are sort of um, incubating in my spirit right now. And so some of what's going to happen tonight is you're going to um, sort of get what may not be fully cooked, but um, you're going to get what you're going to get. Okay. Now, what, what I want you to do real quick, can everybody in here stand? And if you came in here tonight and you are dealing with some type of, of illness, sickness, terminal, doesn't matter what it is, uh, Lord said to me this evening, even as it relates to um, depression, oppression, mental assault, um, and I don't want you to be embarrassed to do this, it could be a chronic illness that you dealt with for years, but anybody in here that falls into that category, I want you to lift your hand in the air, if you will. I believe that the Lord wants to heal you tonight. Yeah. 
I really, really believe that. I believe that the Lord wants to heal you. And so just as, a, as an expression of faith towards that word, would you just begin to, to thank God for deliverance and healing from what, yeah, not, not I, I, I don't want you to, I want you to give it to God. I mean, I really want you to thank him. Just begin to tell him, Lord, I thank you. Thank you, God. I, I, I really believe that in the midst of, and I, I'm, I'm going to give you the right to just disrupt the service because I believe that even while I'm ministering tonight, some of you are going to experience your breakthrough. And when you experience it, I want you to holler out, I got my breakthrough. Praise God. Some of you are dealing with uh, conditions that uh, I'm hearing the Spirit of God say arthritic type conditions and I'm telling you in the midst of this try to move what was hard for you to move try to do what was hard for you to do and you're gonna be able to do it I'm telling you that in the name of Jesus glory so father we just bless you and we thank you not only for your presence but God I thank you that you show up to do something you show up to, to allow us to encounter you. And in, in encountering you, we encounter healing. We encounter deliverance. We encounter breakthrough. So we bless you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. You may be seated. Um, I, I think this is really an understatement, what I'm getting ready to say here. But uh, this is probably one of the most uh, trying times you know, and I'm, I'm a baby of, um, of the 60s. I, I, I grew up in the 60s, and so I experienced some of the 60s. But um, in my lifetime, this is probably one of the most trying times in our nation. And um, a lot of what I want to talk to you about, it, it really has to do with understanding what God is after uh, in the midst of a climate like this in our country. It's really important for us to understand that uh, when things look out of control to us, they are never out of control to God. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And so I'm, I'm, I just want to plow through some thoughts here that, that I, I, I jotted down and, and we'll just see where, where it goes. But um, I want to read out of Genesis chapter 2. And I've probably at some point touched on this uh, before while I was here, but it's a great launching place. It's the second chapter of Genesis, and <clears throat> starting at verse 4, it makes this, uh, this statement that for many people, it just sort of flies over their heads. Now, the reason I didn't want to use NIV, because your NIV is going to use a different word, and I'm really not against the NIV, but sometimes... Uh, in transliteration, you really have to capture what is, the, what is the purest translation of the thing that was said. And in this verse, I really believe that King James actually captures it better. This is what it says in Genesis 2 and 4. It says, these are the generations of the heaven and of the earth 
when they were created. If you write in your Bible, just underline generations because that's a startling statement. These are the generations of the heavens. So he, in chapter 1, he gives us this, um, this outline of this creative process that, that he does. And, you know, for most of us, when we read Genesis 1, we think, okay, well, this is what God did. This is how the earth came about. This is how the planets came about. But what we're reading here is that maybe what we see in Genesis 1 was not this distinct act, but it was an act of many acts that God performed as it relates to the creative process of the earth. So when you hear that word generations, you have to think that it's been a, a progressive process, right? These are the generations. Now, listen to what he says next. He says in verse 5, in every plant of the field before it was in the earth. So these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth and of every plant of the field before it was in the earth and of every herb of the field before it grew. So God is establishing that this creative process, he's not trying to outline for us all of the details of what he did, but he takes time to let us know that this wasn't one single act. But when we're looking at the creation of what we call the world or the earth, this was a part of a generational process a creative generational process that God went through. And what's awesome about God is that it's not the manifestation that establishes the existence of a thing with God. Because if manifestation established the existence, that, that next verse couldn't be in the Bible where he says every plant of the field before it was in the earth. So the plant existed before the field existed, right? So this is the genius of the way God does things, that when God does things, it, he, doesn't, he doesn't engage in this process where he starts at the beginning of a thing and then he matures it and he develops it and then he brings it into manifestation. And you all know this because everybody in the world has has listened to Miles Monroe at some point talk about God's creative process, but God never begins a thing until he has first finished it. He never starts until he's first finished it, okay? That's why God can be so confident in the things that he says to us, all things work together for the good of them that love God. And He can say that kind of stuff because before God ever began you, he finished you. So he's saying whatever occurs in the course of your life, no matter how difficult things may seem, no matter you know, what it may seem like in this moment, you have a guarantee that I've already finished you. And then what I did, I backed up after I finished you. And so I can make these prophetic declarations concerning you because I, I, I know your end from your beginning. I love that, that statement. I know your end, you know. It, it would just seem logical that he would say, I know your beginning and your end. No, 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 that's not the way God works. God already completes the thing and then God starts the work. You got it? 
Now, everything about Genesis and the, cre the creation story, uh, I believe that it is literal. I believe that it actually happened, so I don't want to give any indication that I, I think that it's something else, but I think that just like with all scripture, there's revelation within the thing that God says and God does. So whenever we're reading the Bible, it's important for us to move beyond just the obvious printed page. That's why you need the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit becomes the interpreter to allow you to dig into the deeper truths of what's in the word. If without the Holy Spirit, if you started reading the Bible from the beginning, by the time you got in, in Genesis, when it starts talking about the begats, you would give up and throw the Bible away. Without revelation, I mean, if you just deal with the Bible from a historical standpoint. So what I want you to understand, when God is showing us this creative process through the creation of the natural world, it is really a picture of how God engages with us, how God deals with us in our lives. So in Genesis 1, when it's talking about the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep, that's a picture of you and me. You got it? In other words, God said, I'm going to, through this creative act, I'm going to show you something about my ways and my commitment to you. So when God got ready to make us, he made us from the earth. So everything about this picture of the creation of the earth is a picture of how God engages with us. God understood that because we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity, that we would make these terrible decisions in our lives and we would get stuck on stupid and we would think we could do things our own way and we would, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we would, we would you know, do, I don't want to start listening to things that you've done. I didn't do any of them, but I know you did a whole lot of them. So God knew we were going to do all that stuff, right? So God said, in essence, what was going to happen, your earth, your life was going to become void. And darkness was going to be upon the face of your deep. And in order for that to be changed, the spirit of God has to move. See? And so this is, this is a, just a beautiful picture of, of God's promise to us that he has put everything in the mix. He, he, he understands all of the choices and the decisions that we would make. Nothing catches God by surprise. God doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I can't believe you did that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? None is all in the mix with God, right? Okay, so what I want you to understand is that if you look at this creative process, what we can begin to understand is what's in the heart of God concerning our interaction as the people of God with the environment that we are placed in, okay? So Genesis is not just about you know, this creative thing and it's not just showing you what God was promising to do in your life, but it's God revealing his purpose for us in the earth. And I want you to see something that um, I just think is, is just extremely, extremely powerful. This is that next verse. Well, go back to verse 5. It says, every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. And then look at that last statement. And there was not a man to till the ground. If you write in your Bible, underline that. 
okay? And, and then look at what the next verse says. It says, there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the earth. So here's the picture. God has this earth that he's created. It's a picture of our lives. And he, he said, what's going to happen is you're going to make choices and decisions because of this iniquitous issue inside of you that's going to turn you away from me. And your life is going to become void. Your life is going to become empty. And, he's, and, and this is what he's saying. Now, this environment that we know as the garden or as Eden that man is placed in, God says that the environment is dry because there was no rain. Okay? So just stay with me here. He, he, he puts us in, in this environment in this, in, in our case, it's in our country, it's in your neighborhood, it's in your family. And God says that I'm putting you in a place that's going to become dry, and the reason it's going to be dry is because there's no rain. Mm. Yeah. But, but here, the, the flow of it, it says that God had not caused it to rain because there was no man to work or till the ground. Yeah. So it was the presence mm. of this man yeah. or the absence of this man that was going to determine whether or not the environment was dry yeah. or whether it was lush and fruitful. Yeah. 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 Now, that word till is the word, it's, it's, it's spelled A-B-A-D, but it's actually pronounced avad. Yeah. And that word avad, there is no man to till. Underline that word, double underline that. Because that word is the word worshiper. So look at what God is saying. It's not just the issue of a person in the garden or in the environment, but it has to be a person in the environment that's a worshiper. Okay, so now let's back up and let's just understand it real quick from that perspective. God says, I understand your life is going to get void. It's going to be empty. Darkness is going to fill the face of your deep. But I've got a plan for that. Spirit of God is going to move. Uh, and, and, and until then, I'm going to place you in an environment and the, the, the void that's in you and the darkness that's in you is going to result in a dryness in your environment. But if I can do something to cause you to come into this revelation of worship, if I can take your life and produce a worshiper out of it, what I want you to understand, there's a direct connection between the release of rain and the worshiper. So what's designed to cause the environment to no longer be dry or arid. See, the whole concept is that without the worshiper in the garden, the garden had to exist off of mist, M-I-S-T. Mist is symbolic of the omnipresence of God. But rain is symbolic of the manifest presence of God. So what God was establishing was, he said, until I, I produce out of you a worshiper, yeah. your environment is going to be dry 
but I'm not going to allow it to dry up. I'm not going to totally step out of it and abandon it. I'm going to allow my omnipresence to sustain it until I'm able to get you where you need to be. Because if I get you where you need to be, then I can release the rain and change the environment. Is, is this making sense to you? See, when we look at everything that's happening in our world right now, one of the things that, that and, and maybe we'll talk about this tomorrow, but I'm, I'm really thinking that as the body of Christ, we're engaging in the wrong conversations. I really, really believe this. And I, I, I think that one of the things that the enemy always seeks to do, he seeks to shape the conversation. Because if he can shape the conversation, he, he, through the shaping of that conversation, he is establishing what's important to talk about. And so what happens all too often as believers, as Christians, as the church, we find ourselves in the world having the same conversation that the world is having about the world. Not understanding that God established all the way in the beginning that the reason the Spirit of God moves and the reason that redemptive act of salvation happens in our lives is because God puts us in the garden as the solution for the dryness. So if I spend all of my energy regurgitating and repeating everything that's wrong and everything that's bad and how everything is falling apart. If I spend all of my energy complaining about the condition of the garden, I'm engaging in the wrong conversation because I'm the solution to the dryness. Does that make sense? I mean, that just makes sense to me that, you know, it's like, if God put us here to be the difference and to make the difference, but we're caught up in the debate and the dialogue of the damage and, and all of that, then we're not engaging in our fullest purpose. What I'm trying to get you to understand is everything that we're seeing in culture right now, as terrible as you may think it is, it's a setup for the body of Christ. You know, it, it follows all of the prophetic scriptures that talk about what will happen, that, that the cup of wrath will begin to fill up until it overflows. See, what you have to understand is that God established already prophetically that the darkness, gross darkness, is going to cover the earth. See, he, he told us that things are going to get terrible, things are going to get bad, but he says that's the time that you arise and shine because your light has come. The reason God allows the gross darkness to cover the earth is so that the brightness of your light can begin to shine. We are put here to be light and salt, a city set upon a hill. Now, what you have to understand is the way that we begin to impact culture or the way that we begin to release, uh, create that release of the rain is, is different than a lot of people thinking. Holy Spirit, just help me keep my train of thought here. See, it's the difference between um, if we turned all the lights out in here, which I almost wish they could, but I, we might, might, not, might not be able to get them back on. But, 
But if we turned all the lights out in here, let me ask you just a simple question. What would be easier to get all of the darkness out or to bring the light in? Come on, just let the Holy Ghost work that in your thinking. See, imagine if this room were dark and we said, okay, we're the body of Christ. Let's get all the darkness out of here. So everybody's trying to grab the darkness and we're trying to shove the darkness out the door. Wouldn't that be futile? One simple match. No matter how much darkness is in this space, one simple match has the power to expel the darkness. See, what I'm trying to get you to understand is if we are, t- we are too concerned about trying to get the darkness out. It's the wrong conversation. We're engaging in the wrong thing. We keep trying to get the darkness out. And friend, you can't, how are you going to get the darkness out? No, spend, let's spend our energy getting the light in. Right? Let's get the light in. Light is revelation. Light is pulling the scales off of people's eyes and helping them to see God in a way that they've never seen him before. Not in a religious way. Not, not that he's a God that says we're, we're pacifist and we're not aggressive in social change and social justice. I'm not talking about that. But I'm telling you, light is radical. Light is powerful. And you'd be shocked if, if we as, as believers would begin to concentrate on bringing the light into the culture, yeah. what we would find is that the darkness would fade away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the greatest things that happened to me in my life was someone in the midst of, of me struggling. See, I started preaching at 15 years old, okay? And, you know, I could have a whole conversation with you just about that. 15 years old, going through all of the natural processes of maturation that any uh, teenage boy would go through, wanting to do all the things that any teenage boy would want to do. I laugh at people, and I tell them all the time, I couldn't go to parties because I was a preacher. So I just walk on the street that the party was on. I just walk. (laughs) Maybe some of the party would just spill out on me or something. But, but in the midst of trying to struggle through the process of growing up as this little boy preacher and all of those things, someone finally said to me, listen, instead of you being so overwhelmed and living in such a state of condemnation because of the things that you struggle with and just the natural part of growing up and learning, instead of spending so much energy trying to stop doing something, why don't you spend your energy trying to add something? So instead of trying to stop doing this, why don't you just add that every day you're going to spend this amount of time in prayer? Don't even worry about stop doing that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I know yeah. preachers and religious yeah. people get mad at me here. Yeah, yeah. But it's the same concept. Yeah. Instead of fighting to get the darkness out, yeah. commit yourself to bring the light in. Yeah. 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 You got it? Okay. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me see where, okay, so now, so, so what happens is God says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put this man, I'm going I'm to cause this man to become a worshiper. 
And when I'm using the term worship, I don't want you to hear that in, in sort of religious jargon. I want you to hear that in, in, a, in this very simple definition. Loving God enough to do what he wants you to do. Worship is loving God enough to do what he wants you to do. That's what worship is. I love you so much, God, that I want to please you. And so, therefore, this is what I'm going to do. <clears throat> so, God says, okay, I'm going to put the worshiper in the garden. Now, everything about the, the garden, the, the, the word garden itself is the same word as fence. Okay? So, what God was establishing is, what I'm going to do, I'm going to put this man in the garden, and I'm going to set boundaries around him. Okay? And if this man commits to worship, if he commits to loving me enough to do what I want him to do, then the boundary, and, he, and he's committed to staying within the fence or staying within the boundaries, then this will be Eden. Okay? Eden means delight. Okay? So, so just grab that for a moment. That God says, if you want to experience delight, then you have to stay within the boundaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you move outside of the boundaries, instead of experiencing delight, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to experience dryness and barrenness. Okay? Now, at the same time that we're seeing this picture that God is creating, showing us how we're called to interact with culture... We, we have to understand how the garden became dry, okay? So, real quick, um, go to Luke 18, I think it is, Luke 18. No, it's Luke 10. Try Luke 10. And if it's not Luke 10, we'll try another scripture. And if it's not there, then we'll just keep trying until we find one. Luke 10, yeah. Look at, look at verse um, 18. Simple statement. This is talking about um, <coughs> the enemy. And it simply says, Luke 10, 18, it says, And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So what, what did he, he said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So I'm, just keep this other piece. I know I'm jumping all over, but I told you this is like I'm, something is, I'm almost pregnant. I'm not quite pregnant yet. So it's like you got to stay with me here. So you got the situation over here with Adam in the garden. Now, what I'm trying to get you to understand is this concept of the generations of the heaven and the earth and how the garden or how this environment or this earth how it became dry and void and dark. The reason it became dry and void and dark is because before God ever created us, we understand that he created the angelic realm, right? So he creates the angels, and the angels, unlike us, we have the ability to make choices. Yeah, yeah. The angels had, like, one choice to make, okay? So whether or not they were going to obey God, not obey God, you know the story, uh, Lucifer decided that he didn't want to obey God. And you understand that what Lucifer represented was the perfection of this concept of worship. Because Lucifer, when he's described, 
he's described with all of these stones, right? So when, whenever you read about a description of Lucifer, what it's describing are these stones. All of those stones are reflective because in the context of the angelic host, what Lucifer represented was intimacy with the Father. He was the worshiper. And when the scripture declares that all of these things were in him, what the scripture is saying, and people sort of miss this, this is the way it worked in heaven. In heaven, you had these three different battalions of angels. You had the worshiping angels, the warring angels, and the word angels, okay? Now, Lucifer, as the archangel of the worshiping angels, he is the only angel that is described with, that with all of these descriptive terms of his beauty and these stones and the timbrance and the pipes. So what would happen in heaven is that when the angelic host would offer worship to God, their worship would come through the pipes of Lucifer. See, it wasn't like uh, the, the, like a, a Gabriel or a Michael or the word or the war angels would offer their worship to God and it would go straight to God. It came through Lucifer's pipes. Okay? And the reason he's described in, with reflective stones is because the concept was this. The, the concept was that as they would offer worship unto God, even though it would go through Lucifer, those stones were reflective and they were designed to reflect what Lucifer was facing. So Lucifer in his worship was turned towards God. And so literally he became a reflection of God so the angelic host would see God when they looked at Lucifer. You see? But, but what happened was, you know, he got caught up in pride and, and all of that. And because the worship was designed to come through him, he wanted it to come to him. Right. So that's what created the rebellion in heaven, because Lucifer wanted the worship that was designed to come through him. And he was designed to reflect God, because that's what a worshiper does. A worshiper faces God and out of this volitional desire and obedience to please him, we become a reflection uh, of God to other people. Okay, but Lucifer is kicked out. Now, when he's kicked out, what this verse is describing is what it looked like. It's describing that it looked like a flash of lightning. Now, the reason the word lightning, I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff, but just, just stay with me here. The reason it's using the term lightning is because lightning exists in the second heaven. So you've got three heavens. You've got, you've got the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. Now, the, 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 the second heaven, I want you to sort of uh, understand that. We see the manifestation of lightning in the first heaven, which is the atmospheric heaven. But then there is a dimension of heaven where the, where the angelic realm dwells, okay, where, where, these, where these fallen angels dwell. So what God was establishing is that when Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, he was allowed to occupy the second heaven. Now, before you get confused in what I'm saying, just look at it this way. Here we are right now 
in this, in this room, there's an atmospheric heaven. There's, uh, obviously, if we step outside, we can see that. But then there's a second heaven that represents a heaven of spiritual activity. And then there is the third heaven, which is where the throne of God is. Right Now, when we seek to interact with God, because we're down here, what we have to be able to do is to get past the atmospheric heaven, get past the second heaven where there's uh, angelic activity, and we've got to be able to ascend to that third heaven into the very presence of God. So what God was establishing was in the fall of Lucifer, I'm allowing him to occupy a place that is going to uh, pot potentially stand in the way of you being able to get to me. God allowed this. God allowed this. <coughs> the term Satan is anti-decos. It, it's anti-rights. Anti-rights. Adversary. Anti-rights. So what God was establishing was he was establishing that in the fall of the enemy, I'm allowing him to occupy a position in the second heaven where he's going to stand against your rights. The adversary. And God allowed this. God allowed it. Okay? Now, the next time we see the enemy, we see him in the form of the serpent. Right? So the enemy is, is just like the father is identified as father, son, and Holy Spirit. The enemy also is identified with these different titles representing these different functions that he will function in against the people of God. So you've got, you've got Satan who is the adversary and God allows this, says, I'm going to allow him to stand in opposition to your rights. The next time we see him, he's the serpent. Serpent means prognosticator or predictor. So what the serpent does in the garden, the serpent is a false prophet. Prognostication, prediction, like 1-800, uh, get your future. So the serpent in terms of natural manifestation or interaction in our lives he is allowed to occupy this position of serpent where he is going to try to prophetically prognosticate things that would cause us to believe something different than what God said. That's why when he's in the garden, he goes to the woman, remember the story, and he says, you know, God knows if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be like him. So he's releasing false, false word. Right. But here's here's the thing I want you to see. God says, I'm going to let him stand in opposition to your rights and I'm going to allow him to come into your garden and I'm going to allow him to make accusation against you and me in your garden. But understand, as the serpent, he's under your feet. So in other words, God says, I'm going to allow the enemy to come against you, I'm going to allow the enemy to attack 
your guard, and I'm going to allow the enemy to come against your world. But what you have to understand is I put him in the position of a serpent, and even though he has the, cap the capacity to accuse you and try to release false prophecy concerning you, I put him in a position where he is under your feet. You are yet higher than he is. Higher in the sense of authority. You got it? Now, God allowed all that to happen. God allowed it. It wasn't that the devil had so much power that he chose, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to exist in the second heaven. I'm going to exist in your garden. No, God allowed all of this to happen. Okay? How many of you have quoted the scripture, no weapon formed against me? What does it say? Shall be able to prosper. Okay, no weapon. Why could God make a statement that powerful? Because when you read that, it goes on to talk about the fact that in essence, he has created the very enemy. See, everything that was in Lucifer, God put in him. So the reason God could say no weapon formed against you would be able to prosper is because he knows what weapons he gave the enemy. You see? And then he knows what he's given you. And once again, God starts from the end and then backs up. So God is saying the reason no weapon formed against you can prosper is because I know what I've given him and I know what I've given you and I've given you more than I've given him. Right? Okay. So... So you got this issue where the enemy is in the second heaven, and then you've got him manifesting in your garden as a serpent, and God says, I'm going to allow this. I'm going to allow the enemy to come into your culture, into your environment, and I'm going to allow him to talk. I'm going to allow him to accuse you. I'm going to allow him to say that you won't win. I'm going to allow him to say things like God doesn't love you. I'm going to allow him to do all of that. But what I want you to understand is it doesn't matter what he says as long as you keep him in the position of the serpent and you keep him under your feet. Now, the goal of the enemy is to move from being the serpent to being the devil. God allowed him to be Satan, the adversary, the opposer, to oppose your rights, allowed him to be the serpent, but we make the choice of whether or not he will be the devil. Now, devil is a term, it, it technically means uh, accuser, but what you have to understand is this concept of the devil is allowing the enemy to move from being the serpent to becoming someone who is able to occupy now your mind. Mm. The accusation or the role of the devil in your life is to occupy your thought life and your mind realm. In other words, it's the serpent moving from a position of being under your feet to being in your head. Now, as the serpent, all he can do is accuse, but as the devil, now all of a sudden he's occupying our thought life and his accusation can very easily become our sense of truth. You see the difference? 
In, in, one, in one situation, God says, I'm going to allow him to talk. I'm going to allow him to come in the garden and do all of that. But the issue is keeping him in his proper position, which is under your feet. Devil can say what he wants to say. He can say you're sick. He can say you got cancer. He can say your children are not going to be saved. He can say that your marriage is going to break up. He can say all of those things. It doesn't matter what he says as long as you keep him in his rightful place. No thought is yours until you take ownership of it. And the moment you take ownership of a demonic suggestion, you have allowed the serpent to become the devil. Now, when the enemy is able to get in your thought life and he's able to get in your mind, then all of a sudden you become vulnerable to owning the, the false prophecies, to owning the suggestions, to owning the accusation that's coming from the enemy. It no longer becomes this is what the serpent is saying, but now it moves from this is what I'm saying. See, and, and what you have to understand is as long as believers, we are functioning with allowing the devil to occupy that place in our thinking, we become impotent as it relates to impacting the condition of our garden. See, this, this sounds really, really complicated. I don't mean it to be. But one of the reasons we're not as effective as we need to be as it relates to the culture is because we are in a constant war in our own minds about us. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand, that, you know, God is not going to stop the serpent from talking, but we have the power to stop the devil from accusing. We have the power to stop the enemy from being able to occupy that dimension of our lives that causes us to become paralyzed in self-condemnation and self-accusation. See, for a lot of Christians, they don't believe that they're powerful because the devil has convinced them that they're not powerful. The devil has disqualified them through his accusation. So how are we to change the condition of our world and the condition of the culture if we're in a constant fight with ourselves? When you allow the enemy to continue and to remain in that position in your thought life, all of a sudden, what started as Lucifer that became Satan, that became the serpent, that became the devil, now becomes Beelzebub. Beelzebub is Lord of the Flies. And the reason he's identified as Lord of the Flies is because the connotation is that flies, they, they congregate around dead stuff. So that's why once we give the enemy that region, then all of a sudden, all negative things become attracted to us. So all of a sudden, you know, negative people, negative events, it's like we become a magnet to negativity because we've allowed him to be the devil for so long that now he has the right to be Lord of the Flies. And, 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 and now every demon, every demonic influence, every negative thing is magnetized towards our lives. And that's not how we're purposed to live. Did I confuse you in all this? Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. Wow. 
Look real quick. Look real quick at Revelation 12. And I got to get off of this. Holy Spirit, help me to get off of this. Revelation 12. <clears throat> See, even in God allowing the enemy, whether it's to occupy that second heaven dimension where he is Satan, where he stands against our rights, what you have to understand is everything about the Bible is God responding to a legal dynamic between himself and man. This is not just, you know, I thank God for the love of God, but our relationship with God is not just the love of God. It's a legal relationship as well. So that's, you know, the Bible, Old and New Testament, right? That's short for Old Will and Testament, New Will and Testament. So what this book is, this is what we're be bequeathed. Right? This is revealing to us, this is a legal document that's revealing to us what we have a right to. What Jesus put in the will and then activated that will through his death. And now we have a legal right to these things. So God said, the reason I'm not even balled up right now about allowing the, the Satan to exist in the second dimension is because even though he's going to stand against your rights, if you are smart enough to read the will, then it doesn't matter what he comes against because you can go to the legal document and you can see what I've given you and what you have a legal right to. Yeah. See, that's why even right now with, you know, everybody that's in here, if you're struggling with some form of sickness or uh, depression or oppression, the reason I can say with confidence that God wants to heal you is because it's in the will. You have a right to healing. You have a right to prosperity. You have a right to a, to a quality life. You have a right to save children. You have a right to a strong marriage. You have a right to a healthy family. You have a right to dignity. You have a right to those things. This is not something you have to beg for or ask people to give you or try to convince people that you're worth it. No, this is in the will. And it's legal. It's legal. It's binding. It's a binding contract. And the only way that Satan can stand against my rights effectively is if I'm ignorant to what I have the right to. If I don't know what I have a right to, he'll tell me I don't have a right to anything. And so we have the body of Christ living beneath their privilege because they're not clear on what's in the will or they've allowed the serpent to become the devil. And now what he's doing, he's accusing them day and night, telling them that they have disqualified themselves from the will. But I got good news for you. You are not written out of the will. Your sin did not write you out of the will. 
what your, your failing did not write you out of the will. Jesus put all of that in the mix and his blood is so powerful and so profound that it could cover everything you would ever do or think about doing. When God put you in the will, he put you in the will knowing every mistake you would make. But he said, I'm going to keep you in the will. Because of the finished work of my son, I'm not going to write you out the will. Glory. Now, look, look at what it says in, in Revelation 10, 12. Thank you. I was just checking. <laughs> look at Revelation 12. Look at verse 10. Well, back up because I want you to see it. Look at verse 9. It says, and the great dragon was cast out. So it's, that's, that's uh, Lucifer, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. So there, there's all the terms right there, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brother and his calf. So this is what God is establishing. You, you know, sometimes with Scripture, you, you have to sort of almost read it backwards. I don't know how to describe it, but listen to what this says. If you go to the end of verse 10, it's talking about the accuser. There it is. That's the devil. Is cast down. He's cast down. So what was it that enabled him to be cast down? Well, look at what it says before that. It says, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. So when these things come, when these things come into place, then what happens is there is the authority to cast the devil out. See, when you're reading this, don't just read it as the devil comes to accuse the brethren and I... I almost hate to say this, but because you have to understand that the devil was functioning in that mind realm, the accusation of the enemy will, will usually come either to us or through us. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So the devil functions either towards us coming out of other people or it can come from us to us. So when he's cast down, don't just see that as the devil running around saying, oh, Robert's terrible and Bishop's terrible. No, the devil is Robert having a mindset where he's accusing himself. Robert hits a place where he doesn't need somebody to say, Robert, you're terrible, because Robert wakes up and Robert says... I'm terrible. That's the devil. That's the accuser. So one of the things that's named, and I don't have time to break them all down, but the one I want to concentrate on, the power of his Christ. See, when you see that word Christ, Christos, anointed one, anointing. Say anointing. What does an anointing do? It destroys what? The yoke. What is the yoke? The yoke, the yoke was something they put on the animal or the beast to control its direction. 
And the way the yoke controlled the direction was by controlling the neck. The neck controls what? The head. Where is the mind? In the head. So what the anointing is designed to do is to destroy that yoke off of your life that's controlling your direction, that's controlling your thinking, that's controlling your mindset. That's why the Bible says the anointing flows from the because that's where the mind is. So it flows from the head down. Because if God can destroy the bondage off of our thinking, the body will be okay. My actions will align themselves with the word of God. The problem is that I've allowed the serpent to become the devil. Man, I'm, are we okay? Bishop, I'm fighting through this here, man. We okay? See, the, the, the power of his Christ, when, when, when you come into the true anointing of God, and I, I know because I, I talk about this all the time everywhere I go, the anointing is not the gifts. So when somebody gets up and they really sing, that sister was singing, all the earth will shout you. I mean, just singing that beautiful song. Okay, her beautiful voice is not the anointing. So quit sitting in church saying, oh, they're so anointed because somebody gets up and preaches and makes you feel good or somebody gets up and sings and that's not the anointing, okay? That's a gift or sometimes it's not even that. Sometimes it's just a talent, okay? But the point, but the point that I'm trying to make is that's not the anointing. When you study the anointing, the, the word itself means to smear. It's a combination of two words, which means genesis or beginning and to smear. So what the anointing does, it establishes the paternity of your life. The anointing takes you to where you begin, right? And then it's to smear, which I'm getting all off. Help me, Holy Spirit. The point being that with the anointing, it, it, it brings you into a true state of your identity. The reason we use oil to anoint is because the concept is that the oil has the ability to penetrate the skin. So it's not something that's on you, it becomes something that's in you. Do you understand that? And, it, it, and, and it's a combination of that and Genesis because your Genesis is your beginning. So when we come into the anointing, we're coming into the revelation of who we really are. We're coming into the revelation of who our daddy really is. We're coming into our true self. When we, so when a person is anointed, you are saying that person is walking in the revelation of who they really are. That's the anointing. It's the DNA of God made manifest in our lives. When I'm anointed, I'm not living beneath my privilege. When I'm anointed, I'm not allowing the devil to wreak havoc in my mind. When I'm anointed, I'm not trying to live up to other people's expectations because the only expectation I'm committed to meeting is the expectation of my daddy. When I'm walking in the anointing, I'm walking in the confidence of who God made me. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm not trying to be somebody else. 
sound like somebody else. I'm not trying to do what other people do. You got it? That's when you're anointed. Lift your hands in the air and say, I'm anointed. It's God breaking those shackles off of your life that would give other people the ability to determine the direction of your life, to determine how you see you, how you see yourself. So it's like God saying, listen, when you come into the revelation, he said, he said, now has come the kingdom. When you move out of the meager revelation of church and you step into the revelation of kingdom, let me tell you something. Boy, I, I just got to say these things. Just, I, it may not, any of it makes sense, but I just got to get it out. See, what you have to understand is one of the reasons we're not impacting the garden or the culture is because we're still in church. And what you have to understand is the only reason there is a church is because of sin. If there had have never been sin, there would have never been a church. The church is the salvatory vehicle of God to reconnect, reconnect fallen man back to the Father. The significance of the church is that it's the vehicle through which God begins to heal the broken places of our lives, but it's not the goal of God. The goal of God is kingdom. Kingdom deals with this big old world. Kingdom is dealing with your community. Kingdom is dealing with your job and your vocation and your occupation. Kingdom is so much bigger than church, and I wish God would just break this meager church mentality off of us so that we can impact this world. I'm sorry for screaming at you. I don't mean to scream at you. Glory. So, so what I'm trying to get you to see is so much of this, God said, I'm going to allow these things to happen. I'm going to allow the garden or your, your environment or your culture to become dry. I'm going to allow the enemy to stand against your rights. I'm going to allow the enemy to release false prophecy against you. But you're going to make the determination of whether or not you allow him to become the devil. God is trying to cast the devil out of the church. Because, listen, if we don't see ourselves properly, properly, if we don't think according to the word of God, if we don't think with an understanding of what's in the will and what our rights are, what hope does the world have? So he says, what's going to cast the devil out? What's going to get the accuser out? It's going to be a kingdom mindset. It's going to be people coming into the revelation of who they really are and finding contentment in who they really are. There, there are three, you know, the anointing, they're like these three movements in the anointing. And in the first movement of the anointing, it's you becoming convinced of who God says you are. The second movement in the anointing is that that second realm, demonic, angelic host acknowledges who you are. See, Boy, I wish I had time to talk about this. 
because I would help you understand that the reason we don't get a breakthrough a lot of times is because that second dimension angelic realm, talking demonic now, does not acknowledge our authority. It's, I mean, it's scripture. It's, this, this, it's the guy, what did he say? Paul, I know. See, what you have to understand is there's a hierarchical structure in all of this, and that's why there are some things that you're not able to do because you're not functioning in the dimension of authority where you will be recognized on that level. So, what was my point? Three movements. Okay, so you've got coming into the revelation of who God says you are. In the next movement, that demonic angelic realm must acknowledge who you are. It's in the third realm that people acknowledge who you are. Now just think about that. First realm, you got to know. Second realm, demons got to know. Third realm, now people got to know. Now, what do we want? We want to jump over what God says. We want to jump over all that. And we want to get to, they need to know I'm anointed. You don't have to make anybody know you're anointed. When you come into the presence of a person that's truly anointed, you know what happens. <coughs> Check this out. Check this out. Jesus and Peter, right? Jesus is having this discussion with the disciples. Who do men say that I am? Some say you're this guy. Some say you're the guy. Peter jumps up and he says, what? Thou art the Christ. I'm, I, I recognize. I may not know a whole lot of theology, Jesus. But what I recognize is you are confident in who you are. And, and clearly, the Father, God, is your genesis. So he says, what I'm recognizing is the anointing. Now, what happens? Jesus turns right around and says, what? And then what does he do? What, what does he do with Peter? He tells Peter who he is. Prior to that, he was walking in the revelation of Simon. But the moment he comes into the revelation of the true anointing, the result of that is... He now comes into the revelation of who he truly is. See, when you come into the midst of people that are, that are functioning in the anointing of God, it brings out the real you. See, it brings out the real you. See, that's why for us as pastors, and I know Bishop is like this, and I know that, that Pastor Keith is like this. See, I don't want you to be a religious person puppet. I don't want you to be one of these people that you know how to say hallelujah and you know when to buck and you know when to lift your hands and you know all of the calisthenics and all of the things that that we want to say to people we're spiritual and and you know and we're godly. See what I'm trying to get God is not after all of that. God wants you Peter. You're cussing don't, don't get me. I'm not saying God wants you to cuss. What I'm saying is every experience that you've been through that, that has shaped 
the person that you are. You may be raw. You know, you may be. I remember one of the one of the most sincere compliments. I wish I could just tell you fully what he said, but I don't I'm not comfortable. If I was at home, I'd say it. But but I, I, I had ministered and it was a guy. He was like a straight. Like he's just out there. You know what I'm saying? He's just out there. Right. And so he comes up to me after, and he said, man, you preached your A off. You preached your A off. He was right in front of church, man. Members standing there. Everybody's looking. You preached your A off. Man, you took that S, and you said this, and you went. I mean, (laughs) man, I grabbed that brother. I hugged him. Man, because listen, he didn't mean no harm. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't trying to offend anybody. He had been touched by the power of God, and what it was tapping into was his true self. Now, what we got to do, we got we to gotta polish him, and we got we to gotta do all of those things, but not polish him to the place where we try to make him this religious puppet that's something different than what God made him to be. Does that, does that make sense? Glory. So it's what we want to do, we want to keep jumping to that third tier of anointing where we're concerned about how people see us and how they define us and what they think about us. And, and the point that I'm really trying to make is when you're truly anointed, you don't care. You don't care what people think. You don't care. When you're truly anointed, you don't care how they define you because you understand that's not your genesis. They are not defining you. So, boy, I've been all over the place. Okay. Golly. Okay, so the the, the thing I'm trying to get you to understand is Okay, so God is trying to get the devil out. He's, he said, okay, I'm allowing, I'm allowing Satan to fight from that dimension to stand against your rights, and I'm even allowing the serpent to be in your garden. I'm allowing the serpent to be in your garden. And the reason I'm going to have a problem with the serpent being in your garden is because I put him under your feet. Right? So ain't no big deal that he's there. Because you have authority over him. Now, the issue becomes him getting in that mind realm and becoming the devil and then moving to this concept of Beelzebub where now all of a sudden our life becomes filled with dead things and flies. Right? So the issue that God is trying to address is really in this area of our thinking and our self-perception our thinking and our self-perception, how we see ourselves. And are we allowing God to define us or are we allowing people or even religion? Even religion. See, you know, with everything that's happening in our world right now, I'm telling you this, and if you don't hear anything else, hear this as a Christian. Religion is not going to win this generation 
or change this world. It's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. This generation, when I grew up, I grew up in church. I grew up in church programs, Sunday school. See, even our concept of how we do this thing, we have to understand on some levels, like I always say, it's like, uh, it's, it's like uh, you know, uh, soul train ministry for uh, uh, Yo, M Yo MTV Raps culture. I mean, it's almost like we're, we're sort of behind in our approach. We're not allowing our approach in ministry to evolve, to meet what's happening with this generation and what's happening with this culture. And where we grew up on programs, this is not a program generation. So as a pastor, what I had to learn, you can develop all kinds of programs. You can have greatest programs in the world. You know, you got a program for this, you got a program for that. And what you have to understand is this generation is not embracing that. This is a relational generation. It's a relational generation. And, and everything that we see happening in the natural is reflective of a spiritual truth. We live in a culture where the number is climbing. Somewhere like 70% of young people today grow up in a household where there is not a, 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 a father present. Okay? Now, why is that significant? It's significant. I'm not, don't get into the gender issue on this. I'm trying to make a point here. The symbolism of, of the father is that the father is the one that names the child or brings the child into the place of identity, understanding who or she is. So the reason the enemy has worked so hard to remove the man out of the household is because it leaves a generation orphaned in their own self perception. And what we are facing in today's generation, in today's culture, is an orphan spirit. And that orphan spirit, you got to see, the church has really got to address this. We are facing, and, and see, it's not just orphan in the sense that daddy is not there. It's orphan in the sense that many times, even if parents are there, they're not there. And it's orphan in the sense that what we are saying to the culture, we are speaking to their value in our hearts. So to give you an idea of what I'm saying, see, this is one of the reasons why abortion is such a terrible thing. I don't want anybody to feel condemned if you had an abortion. Ask God for forgiveness, and he forgives you. But I'm making a point here. See, what we, what we have said to these generations that have come after abortion is that you are disposable. Like I let you live. But I could have very easily made the choice. And, and in many cases, children know that their parents were even battling with the choice of whether or not. You understand what I'm saying? See, this orphan spirit is a terrible thing. It's a terror. And that's why what this generation needs out of the body of Christ is not another program. It ne this generation needs mothers and fathers. Mothers and fathers. But so, you know, 
the, the ministry that you can provide in this season to win this generation is take that young person, that, that 19, 20, 21, after church and say, come on, go out and eat with me. And sit down and break bread with them. And don't feel like you got to do anything other than just be there and begin to love them and begin to connect with them and begin to pull out the truth of who they really are. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know how we got there, but somehow I slipped over in there. Okay. I got I to gotta go because I'll just wear you all out. I feel like I'm just giving you everything that's in my gut. Just... That's what's there. Real quick, I want to go to Matthew 8 and 22. And this is where I'll, I'll try to find the exit in here. Matthew 8. And I'm still, you know, trying to, to deal with this whole issue that in order for us to, to bring the rain, to, to uh, release God, to release the rain on our culture. There's a place that we have to get to. And the place that we have to get to has everything to do with our thinking and getting, getting the devil out, casting the devil out. You got that? Okay, so this is when Jesus is uh, on the boat, I do believe, and in the storm. Uh, let me see where I want to be. Yeah, okay, yeah. Verse uh, 24. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, and so much the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. So Jesus was asleep on the boat, and the, and the storm comes, right? His disciples come to him, wake him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Now listen to what he says. He says unto them... Why are you so fearful, you of little faith? Now, some translations say he rebuked them, saying. Okay? The reason this is significant is because the devil is very, very subtle. Okay? So see the picture. They're on the boat with Jesus in the storm. Granted, there's a storm. But they wake him up. And this is what they say, don't you care about us? It was accusation. See, this was the devil. This was the devil. This was accusation. And this is when the enemy is able to become the devil, the worst thing that we do is we begin to accuse God. Don't you care, God, what I'm going through? Don't you care that I'm struggling? Lord, 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 Lord. See, I want, you, I want you to really see this concept of the devil because when we can identify him, we can kick him out. Okay? When we can identify that's what's operating in us, then we can kick him out. So what they are doing, they are subtly in a sly way, trying to manipulate Jesus. Okay? Because that's what we're reduced to when we're functioning out of this mindset of the enemy. We begin to try and manipulate God to get him to do... We want God to feel sorry for us. 
<laughs> God, if you love me, you know, if you, I guess I'm just, you know, and then we'll move to this kind of stuff. I guess I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just too evil. I'm just too bad a person. I've sinned too. See, all of this is accusation. How many of you will be honest enough to know that the enemy's playing this game in your mind all the time? See, there's no power in that. There's no power in that. If you want to live a powerful life as a Christian, you got to get this joker out of your mind. Okay? And you got to stop accusing God. God told you what he's going to do for you. Okay? So what Jesus does, Jesus gets, before he even addresses what they're going through, he rebukes them. Okay? Before he gets to responding to the thing that they're afraid of or the thing that's coming against them, the first thing that he does is, and, and there's so many versions of this, but what he says in essence is, where's your faith? Now, why is that significant? Let me tell you why this is so significant. You know the scripture that we, that, that, uh, is it, is it Romans? I can't, it's not coming right now where it says he is given to every person a measure of faith. One, when you get home, really read that. Study that word measure and it will change your whole concept of faith. You know what that scripture is saying? See, people read that scripture because prior to that is talking about it in the context of the gifts. When you read that scripture, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I want you to have confidence in whatever I've called you to do because I've given every one of you the measure, the required amount. That's what that word means. The required amount. In other words, and then when you under, boy, I'm going to go off on something else here, but just, just faith, we, we don't understand. See, we think that faith is something that we work up and get because we, we don't read the contract. We hear faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by the preposition is ek. It doesn't mean that faith comes to me by what I hear. It means that faith comes from me as a result of what I hear. What I'm telling you is that faith, God has given you the required amount of faith that you need. The problem is not you getting faith. The problem is you releasing faith. You see? So when he says, I've given to everyone the, the measure of faith, he's saying, whatever I have called you to do, whatever you have to overcome, whatever you are facing, whatever the enemy is throwing in your path, whatever medical report you get, whatever your financial situation is, whatever it is in life, I've already put in you all the faith that you need. The required amount that you need is already there. What we have to do is we have to get it released out of you. So when Jesus is dealing with the disciples and he rebukes them, he says to them, where is your faith? The reason he's saying it is because he's saying, I know what my daddy gave you. So he gave you the required amount. The same thing happens with Peter. When Peter steps out on the water and the storm comes and, and Jesus says, oh, ye of Little faith. That word little is not talking about amount. The word means a burst. In other words, 
I've given you all the faith that you need, Peter, to make it from the boat to me. Why are you just using a burst of faith? See, I've given you all the faith that you need. Just lift your hands in the air. Say, thank you that I have all the faith I need. Come on, I got all the faith I need. It's already there. It's a, it's a part of your inheritance. It's a part of what has come through your relationship with Jesus Christ. The issue is not getting faith. That's why people don't get breakthrough in the storm. Because they get in the storm and they start trying to get faith. That's why people don't get breakthrough when they get a bad doctor's report. They get the doctor's report and then start trying to get faith. You don't have to get faith. It's already there. Get it released out of you. And what God is establishing is that when you are hearing the word of God, a part of hearing, a part of the job of hearing the word of God is that the word of God is a part of the key that God has given that unlocks the faith that's in you. So when I'm preaching to you and when your spirit, you know how your spirit will get stirred when I'm, when I'm hitting that place that's building your faith confidence, you know what I'm saying? This building, this building that sense of confidence in the faith that you have. What's happening is that the word of God is like, it's like your faith is like a bomb with a wick. And when I begin to release the word of God, it's the fire that catches that wick that causes your faith to now come alive or explode inside of you. That's what's happening. It's not that you're getting faith. You already got faith. You've already got it. So what Jesus does with the disciples, he says, where is your faith? Because I know what the Father has given you. I'm getting ready to take away all of your baby rights now. I'm getting ready to take away all of your excuses right now. Everything that you're going through, you are equipped to win. You are equipped to overcome. God has already put in you what you need to be more than a conqueror. You don't have to sit here and ask for it, beg for it. It's already been bequeathed you in the will. The issue is whether or not you will tap into the will and whether or not you will release your faith according to what God has said concerning you and not according to what the devil has convinced you of in your mind. Glory, hallelujah. So then what Jesus does, he says, okay, before I can deal with what's hurting you, let me deal with you. And that's what's happening in our lives. God knows you're going through stuff, but he's saying before I deal with what's hurting you, I got to deal with you. Because I'm not trying to produce or enable you to be an invalid. I'm not trying to enable you to be a weak, merely afraid Christian. I'm not trying to enable you to be a begging Christian. I'm trying to bring you into the truth of who you really are. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are a son or a daughter of God hallelujah so he 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 literally says let's deal with this faith issue I want you to embrace that the amount of faith that you need in this storm is already in you the amount of faith that you need right now with what you're going through in your life is already in you the amount of faith that you need to bust through that Poverty mentality is already in you. The amount of faith that you need for your marriage to be restored is already in you. And then listen to what he says. He says, okay, now that I've got that issue settled, now let me model for you how you deal with the devil. 
See, the devil was showing up in the whipping winds and in the rain and in the storm. And so what it says is that Jesus rebukes the wind. He rebukes the waves. And then he says, peace, be still. When you get home, don't get hung up on the peace. We know that means nothing broken, nothing missing. In other words, what he was saying was, in the midst of this storm, I'm calling for everything to come into alignment with the perfect will of God. That's what peace means. I'm calling for everything to come into a perfect alignment with the will of God. Anybody that's impacting this situation, you got to line up with what God says. If I need money to line up, peace. If I need people to line up, peace. If I need my body to line up, but this is what I love. He doesn't just say I'm calling for everything to line up. Then he says to the wind, be still. Because the wind represents spiritual activity. This is the demonic realm. This is, this is Satan up there standing against my rights showing up in the form of the devil in my mind. Jesus says, be still. Say, be still. You know what it means in the original language? Put a muzzle on it. Put a muzzle on it. That's what it literally means. So he says to, the, to those spiritual demonic forces, I'm not listening to you any longer. Put a muzzle on it. Put a muscle on it. And that's what you need to say tonight to that demonic voice that is constantly causing you to live beneath your privilege, telling you it doesn't work for you, telling you that it works for everybody else, but it doesn't work for you. You don't need a Benny Hinn anointing to blow on people. You don't have to be some great prophet with some great name. You don't need any of that. Everything that you need, God has already put in you. And when the devil tells you it's not there, tell him, put a muzzle on it. When, when the doctor's report says you got cancer, look at that report and say, put a muzzle on it. Yeah, yeah. Come on, preacher, yeah. Glory, come on, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet.